0: Okay, Joshua chapter 20, if you're not turned there yet. As we come to these chapters, if you were with us last time, we're really in a section now in the book of Joshua where the military campaigns have come to a close and the division or what we might call the allotment of the land is now starting to take place. Uh, we looked at quite a lengthy section last time, chapter 15 through chapter 19, as really Joshua and Eliezer and some of the heads of the tribes were then allotting the different territories for the 12 tribes. Of Israel describing the boundary lines, whether it was rivers or mountain ranges or particular geographic reference points, the different territories that the tribes would have, and we gave you a map to try and help sort some of them out a little bit. And as we come to chapter 20 now, In chapter 21, we're still a little bit dealing with some of those same things. Here we're looking at the uh, allotment or the designation of what are called the cities of refuge that we've talked about before, as well as the Levitical cities, the 48 different cities that the Levites received. Remember, they didn't receive an allotted territory like the tribes, Uh, But they actually received 48 different cities throughout the land of Israel to be spread out among them. And that's what we see here in some of these next few chapters. And then as we pick up in chapter 22 through 24, we begin to get some more narrative again moving forward. So look at the beginning in chapter 20, verse 1. We read here, the Lord also spoke to Joshua saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, appoint for yourselves cities of refuge. He says, of which... I spoke to you through Moses. So again, reminding them here, uh, this is the at least the third time we have specifically Deuteronomy 19, Numbers chapter 35, these cities of refuge have already been described by God. He's already told them that they're to appoint these six different cities. Three were on the eastern side outside of the land where the two and a half tribes chose to settle. Three would be on the western side of the Jordan within the actual land, the Canaan land of the promised territory as well. And these cities, which were basically an an asylum, a place where someone could uh, sort of run to for sanctuary to have temporary protection, uh, why they could get a fair judicial hearing in some ways. And it's described here again, which again, this is referenced once again, God's reminding them about this. And again, because of the repetition in the word of God, We have to understand that for some reason, this is important to God, again, that he puts this in here for us. So these are now where those cities were to be. But we get another reiteration of the purpose of these cities, what they were for. Beginning in verse 3, these cities of refuge were so that the slayer who kills a person, notice key, accidentally or unintentionally may flee there. Uh, And they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. So again, these were cities, sanctuaries, asylums, if you would, where if you were working out in the fields and your axe head accidentally flew off and you know, hit your uh, person working next to you in the head and it was a mortal wound and they died as an unintentional or accidental death on the job or uh, something happened, again, with an animal and a person got injured uh, and it led to their death or whatever. Again, this was not premeditated murder. The law described exactly how that was to be addressed. That was a capital crime. There was no excuse for that. You were to experience the judgment according to the law of losing your own life if you took a life. But this is what we might call accidental manslaughter. These were occasions where it wasn't a premeditated murder because of hatred it wasn't a hate crime or a killing uh, because someone lost control in the fit of rage or whatever uh, these were accidental unintentional deaths when you cause the death of someone else that you could then flee to these particular cities it says there and they would be a refuge a safe spot from the avenger of blood now again as we talked before the avenger of blood is a description to how in that culture uh, they would basically settle their judicial matters among families and clans uh, by taking their own initiative as a family to resolve that or get justice or vengeance, to take revenge for the bloodshed against your family. They did not have, as we have today, you know, law enforcement uh, to handle these kind of things and judicial systems. So typically in that day, uh, if someone in your family was killed, usually every family had a designated relative who was sort of their uncle Guido. Uh, and that was his job. He was the avenger of blood for your family or your clan to then pursue that individual and, and to basically, uh, in a sense, take vengeance on them for shedding your family members' blood and killing someone in your family. Well, of course, God never desires that there be death. And if there's already one accidental death, certainly God doesn't want this to then continue where there's more innocent bloodshed. If It was an innocent accidental death to start with. Uh, And because this was a cultural way that they handled things in that ancient culture. And to this day, there are still territories where this same kind of practice is carried out. Uh, if you go to a lot of you know third world countries quite honestly i 've even been some locations uh, on missions trips, maybe some of you have as well, and you realize uh, if an issue happens there ain 't calling no law enforcement i mean <laughs> if you contact law enforcement and they showed up three weeks later that 'd probably be quick uh, in some of those areas, so you can understand how in some of these Again, cultures, this was kind of a necessary thing to satisfy things judicially, to deal with the situation if your family member was murdered or whatever because there was no judicial system. But these were accidental deaths. God didn't want the innocent shedding of blood to continue onward. So God institutes this here. For the children of Israel because he wants them to respect the sanctity of life and so that this person isn't then murdered unintentionally before their innocence can be proved that this wasn't a again premeditated hate crime in regards to what happened. So verse four says, when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of the gate of that city. Again, this is what the gate of a city was. It was where the the judicial matters were decided, where military matters are decided, which is important because sometimes in the Bible we read of things happening in the gates. Jesus talks about the gates of hell will not prevail against us. He's not talking about literal gates. He's talking about the plots, the decisions, because in the gates of a city were where the judges and the leaders and the elders talked and discussed matters and made their decisions. So when Jesus talks about the gates of hell, he's talking about the devil and his minions' ideas and their uh, sort of plots they come up with, It those things won't succeed against the church. So here it says, when you run to the gate of the city, Your matters being heard by the elders there at the gate, they shall take in that person who accidentally murdered someone into the city as one of them, as their own citizen, give him a place. They were to provide a residence for him that he might dwell among them in a safe sanctuary type setting as an asylum. And then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his brother unintentionally. It was innocent, but he did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, has a fair trial where the facts can be brought forth, and he's not put to death unintentionally before his innocence can be proved and heard out as the matter is discussed. And then also he was to remain there until, notice, the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. Then, once the high priest died, the slayer may return and come to his own city, and his own house to the city of which he fled. So these cities of refuge, again, they were provided means by God so that mercy could be given to this individual because of the accidental or unintentional death so that the... Uh, punishment of the uh, avenger of blood could not be executed upon them and he was safe as long as he remained within one of these cities of refuge. And uh, this is what they were established for for this purpose. Notice that even within the city of refuge, he was only safe if he got to the city of refuge. You had to get to the city of refuge and take advantage of the refuge that was supplied. You could, why can't I just go to this city? This one's closer. No, no. You need to go to God's designated refuge. God's created a refuge. God's pr- provided a way for you to be sheltered from the judgment of the avenger of blood, but you have to take what God has offered, one of his six designated cities of refuge, a- and you need to remain there. If you chose to leave the city of refuge, then you put yourself back in the risk of judgment. And again, as we look at these things, it says as well that you had to then remain there, interesting, until the death of the high priest and once the high priest in that they died then there was a freedom and allowance to no longer be held accountable and you could then return back to your own city and dwelling and at that point it was understood you could not then In a sense, be held accountable any further. Somehow the death of the high priest absolved the matter altogether, and even the avenger of blood then would be wrong if they were to try and take your life at that point. Now, these cities of refuge, of course, were literal things that God established and Israel instituted, but of course, they're a picture in many ways of Christ's salvation for us. And how Jesus becomes our city of refuge, how he provides a spiritual refuge for you and I. Because just like the uh, slayer, whether it's intentional or unintentional, the Bible says the wages of our sin, our mistakes, is death. And there is an avenger, there's a punishment that we deserve for our sin, but Jesus becomes our refuge from that punishment. Jesus provides us refuge from the consequences of of our actions from the consequences of our mistakes again the wonderful thing is in this day if it was an accidental or an unintentional death you were safe in the city of refuge if it was premeditated and you did it out of hate or or, or with volition you knew what you were doing then you weren't safe you paid with your life for the penalty the wonderful thing with jesus is our refuge is whether you are innocent or guilty whether your sin was accidental or it was a transgression a purposeful mistake with eyes wide open you still have refuge in jesus that's incredible that's way better you know in this day you were only spared if it was accidental mistakes in in jesus Even for all our purposeful mistakes, where we transgress knowingly and hatefully or selfishly, we still have refuge and we're spared from the judgment that we deserve for our sin. And also, like these cities of refuge, they were strategically put in locations where they were easily accessible. They were well marked. The roadways were always cleared. There were even, it said historically, those who were runners who hung out near the post signs that would say refuge and would guide people quickly how to get to a city of refuge if someone came running looking for one. And they were easily accessible so people could quickly get to them. And it wasn't a complicated thing to find the refuge to be spared the judgment over your life. And in the same way, it pictures Jesus' salvation because isn't it wonderful it's not complicated Jesus has made it so easy for us the way is clear the way is provided he said I am the way the truth and the life a- and with Jesus all we need to do is come to him by faith the Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved it's not a complicated thing we don't have to wonder and be confused and well, well what do I have to do how many hoops do I have to jump through and I got to say how many of these and do how many of that and, and when it just, it's simple you just call upon the name of the Lord Jesus saved me and as simple as the grace of God and our faith in him it's very easy and accessible to find refuge from our sin in Jesus and the same way as the high priest here his life spared you while you were in the city of refuge and his death that absolved your guilt and your condemnation once and forever you were freed in the same way Jesus as our great high priest it's his intercessory life that spares us and saves us now But in the same way, it's the death of Jesus and what he did on the cross that assures us that we will never, ever again, forever be held liable for our guilt and mistakes. And this very beautiful way, this pictures in many ways the refuge spiritually that we have in Christ. So verses 7 through the remainder of the chapter then describe the areas that these six cities were. They appointed Kadesh, it says, and Galilee in the mountains of Naphtali, that would be up north. Uh, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and Kirjath Arba which is Hebron in the mountains of Judah that is down in the south and on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward they assigned Bezier in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh and these were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them That whoever killed a person accidentally may flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. So again, we're told now where these six cities were actually located since the tribes have been established, the tribal territories, the cities can now be set up of these cities of refuge. You know, it is interesting, uh, if you want to poke around a little bit to look at the terms, uh, the actual names of the cities, Kadesh and Shechem and Hebron and Bezir and Ramoth, Gilead and Golan, what those words mean, the, the terms, they actually, again, Hebron means fellowship, Uh, I believe it's Kadesh means righteousness or holiness. And as you look at these terms, how in many ways, again, certainly no coincidence, the, the names of these cities that were selected speak of implications of what we experience as the result of finding refuge and salvation in Jesus. In Jesus, through his salvation, Hebron, we find fellowship. We now have fellowship with God because of the being spared of our sin through Jesus Christ. We, in Jesus, find righteousness and, and, and holiness as the result of coming to Jesus and his refuge for our sins. So, again, just very beautiful, these hidden treasures God's tucked away in his word of what's described even among the cities of refuge. Now, chapter 21 describes to us, The allotment of the cities that were given to the Levites, the tribe that were the ministers in the tabernacle and ultimately in the temple. The heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came near to Eliezer the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in, with their common lands for our livestock, So the children of Israel gave to the Levites from their inheritance, now that they have their allotted territories, they could now give cities all throughout, at the commandment of the Lord, and these are the cities and their common lands. So again, we've talked about this before, the Levites, because they were to be fully given to the work of the Lord, to the tabernacle ministry, tending to the altar and the sacrifices. These are the uh, people from this tribe that then also came the priestly family, Aaron the high priest and his sons as well that took care of the altar and these different types of things inside the actual tabernacle and then the temple itself, the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the golden lampstand because they were to be given fully to these things they weren't given large territories where they were to grow crops and take care of you know herds and animals and so forth and to cultivate land because they were to be occupied with the things of the lord they did not get the same inheritance as the people got and and this as well was a way Uh, Also for them to basically be able to give themselves not only fully what they were, but they were to dwell and to live among the people still because you notice they were still given cities that they were to maintain smaller portions, smaller territories so that they could still experience the everyday life. Like all the other people among them, again, they didn't live in some uh, you know uh, place up in the mountain that was radically. They lived among the people, liked the people in the same way, that they took on the same responsibilities. Uh, but yet there was this distinction, and the people gave a portion of their inheritance to substantiate them so that they could be empowered and freed up to provide the spiritual ministry and service to minister to the Lord on behalf of God's people and to be able to minister to God's people the spiritual help and the assistance they needed. So they were basically scattered throughout the land of Israel to provide spiritual influence all throughout the land. And God purposely, strategically placed them in 48 different cities all throughout the land so that they were all throughout Israel as spiritual representatives as well as spiritual assistance to be able to help the congregation as they dealt with things that they needed spiritual assistance with. So verse 4 tells us, The Lot came out for the family of the Kohathites, and the children of Aaron the priest, who were the Levites. They had 13 cities of Lot from the tribe of Judah down in the south, the tribe of Simeon and the tribe of Benjamin. The rest of the children of Kohath had 10 cities by Lot, among the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The second, remember, there were three families of the Levites, the Kohathites, Gershonites, and Merarites. They all had different responsibilities. We saw this earlier in our studies. So the, the second of the family lines of Levi, the Gershonites, they had 13 cities by lot among the tribe of Issachar, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Naphtali, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and Uh, So those references would have them primarily up in what we would call the northern Galilee area, if you remember from your map where these particular tribes were. And then thirdly, the children of Merai, according to their families, they had 12 cities among the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun. And the children of Israel gave these cities with their common lands by lot to the Levites as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Of Moses now basically from verse 9 all the way down through around verse 40 describes specifically the actual city names themselves all 48 of them the actual locations many of these territories of the ancient land again aren't even reference points we would recognize so we won't torture you with my mispronunciation of all those names if you have trouble sleeping tonight after the debate you can read those and it will assist you verse 41 all the cities of the levites within the possession of the children of israel were 48 cities with their common lands every one of these cities had its common land surrounding it thus were all these cities so the lord gave to israel the land which he had sworn to give their fathers they took possession of it and dwelt in it so again The Levites now scattered around as God said they would be. And again, you see the wisdom of God in this as in 48 different locations throughout that land. Uh, Some have mapped this out and say that when you look at where the 48 cities are, that on average it would be no more than 10 miles for anyone within the whole nation of Israel to be able to get to one of these Levitical cities where there would be Levites, ministers, and priests on hand uh, dwelling in those cities there. So again, you can see how God strategically, as I said, he scattered them around like salt and light all throughout the land because these were those who would teach the word of God. These were those who were well-versed in the scriptures if you had problems Whether it was a domestic issue, a family problem, trying to understand something theologically or figure out how to walk with God or serve the Lord, uh, there was close proximity to be able to go and find one of these men who could offer spiritual counsel to you, who could teach you the ways of God, the word of God, who could represent by example how to live godly, And they were there to serve in that capacity. If anyone needed spiritual guidance, it was always very easy in someone close to give spiritual influence and example and instruction as was needed. And again, the Levites, when we look at them, they're a beautiful picture, really, of what God has done with all of us now. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, Peter says, that we are priests spiritually spiritually. And and we are a, a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, and we, like the Levites, are, are all, the Bible says in the New Testament, we are able ministers of the New Covenant. Every one of us is Christians. Jesus says that we are salt And light and salt and light were intended to be scattered. Salt was a preservative. It was used to stop decay. It was used to arrest the growth of bacteria on meats and foods and even to be put into the soil at times. And light was used to drive away darkness. And Jesus says that you and I as Christians, we are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. And because of that, like the Levites, guess what God has done? He strategically scattered us all around the land so that we can be people of spiritual influence where we're at, in our job, in our neighborhood, in our family. And he's put us all in the locations he has so that when people deal with issues, there's someone of spiritual influence by. There's someone there that, you know, maybe they're searching for God or they're trying to figure something out. And yet there you are scattered, put strategically where you are, that someone knows you in a sphere of relationship or friendship. And they say, hey, you're one of these people who reads the Bible. What does God say about this? Or or I'm having problems in my marriage or raising my kids or, or, you know, I just I don't understand this about God. And there you are to be able to speak from the word of God, to be salt and light. Someone at times, even when everyone else is enjoying the corruption, to be that one person who would say, you know, I don't agree with that. I think that's immoral. I think that's wrong. I think it's heading the wrong direction. I think that's unrighteous, and that we would be that one individual who could be light in our school, or or a preservative uh, among others who are wanting to just head into filth. That we would say, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that's a good thing to do, and and I don't agree with that, and that we would have that spiritual influence and assistance and be able to help instruct in the ways of God, just like the Levites scattered all around here. Well, verse 44, the chapter concludes here, saying, the Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and not a man of all the enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand, and this is a great underlinable verse. Verse 45, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel all came to pass man that again here we are at the end of a seven-year military campaign conquering the land fighting battles to keep in mind this is about about a seven-year period that they've now been in the land enduring conflict and challenges and fighting enemies and so forth and that summation there as we start to come to the close of the book not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken and promised. In other words, what God promised, he by his power performed. It says there, all came to pass. What a wonderful thing it is that God is a God who keeps his word. He's able to keep his word. God is unlike any human being. He's unlike all our other life experiences where people say something and then they don't do it. Or they give us their word and they don't follow through. Or they give us their word and then they change their mind. And whatever reason it may be, whether it's because a person just is dishonest, or they lack integrity, or they become selfish, or they become double-minded, or they change their mind, or things don't go the way they wish, so they get nervous and they turn tail and run, or whether it's just maybe they had good intent and, and they wanted to keep their word, but they're just human, and because of their own weaknesses, they just failed, and they couldn't, they couldn't provide what they promised. They couldn't produce what they said they would do. Whatever it is, the wonderful thing is God is not a man. And we should never take our disappointments and bad experiences with human beings and translate that over to God because that's the one thing that's unique about God. And it's the one thing that makes God wonderful and God's word wonderful is he's fully reliable. It doesn't just say that God will not lie. The Bible says God cannot lie. Do you understand it One thing that God would not lie oh, i don't think God would lie because He has integrity. God would never lie. The Bible says of God that he cannot lie he's not even able to lie if he wanted to he He wouldn't be able to because He is such a God of truth and faithfulness and righteousness, and how wonderful as we think of our lives. The promises, the the word of God filled with promises to us. God giving us his word about his provision, his love, his forgiveness, eternal life, his hope, his help, whatever it may be, his spirits, ministry, all these things. And not one word will ever fail of any good thing which God has promised. He will never let us down. His word will never fail. It will all come to pass. Many of us can nod our head and say, amen. Yes, Lord, that's been true. And and rejoice in that and love God for his great faithfulness in that way. And by the same token, all of us can also look at that and say, wow, Lord, I hold on to that. Because I'm trusting you're not going to fail me. I'm trusting that despite what I feel or think or I'm experiencing that the right way is the way that your word says and that your word won't fail and though everyone else may laugh at me or mock me or question me or, or everything in me may want to say well I, I know God's word says that but I don't care I'm just that you can say no I'm going to stand on God's word because it won't fail he'll come through he'll bring it to pass and how wonderful that we can have that assurance in the Lord. Well, chapter 22 says, so Joshua then called the Reubenites, the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, remember, these were the two and a half tribes that wanted to dwell on the eastern side. They didn't want to inherit the land with Israel. But the responsibility was what? They had to go in and fight the military campaigns before they settled back on the eastern side of the Jordan outside of the land. They were given freedom to do that, but they had to go in and help and assist the people of God to conquer the land that God wanted to give to them even though they chose to make a concession and dwell outside so the seven-year military campaign has come to an end Joshua now calls those two and a half tribal warriors together from those two and a half tribes that will dwell on the east and he says to them you have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. So they have been faithful warriors, faithful, loyal comrades to help their brothers in the military campaigns. You have not left your brethren these many days, verse three, up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as he promised them, now therefore return. And go to your tents into the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. So seven years of active military conflict, campaigns, battles, so forth. These individuals, keep in mind, the men, the warriors that came over into the land, they've been gone potentially unless they went back to visit periodically. We, We could only speculate on that. They've been gone from their wives and their children and their families and their inheritance for seven years. And this is basically now, in some ways, sort of the honorable discharge. The war is over. Your duty has been served. They're being commended for their faithful service. And I think anyone who gives any form of service and armed conflict or battle in any way deserves the honor, the respect that you see and given here to them. You've been faithful. But Joshua was saying, thank you for what you have done. You've kept the charge. You've not left your brethren to this day. You, you've been a faithful, loyal comrade serving in the ways that you have. And now they're being given this honorable discharge to return back to their families, to their tents, to their possession, and to be able to go back home. It must have been quite an emotional experience that day as they were now returning back. And they're on their way back, but before they do, verse 5, he gives them an exhortation here. A warning, because they're now going to cross back over the Jordan outside the land where they chose to say. So Joshua gives them a warning as they're departing. He says, but take careful heed. You've done well fighting battles, that's good, but what matters most is your spiritual condition. He says, take heed that you do the commandment of the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Number one, to love the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua says to them, listen, you've been great warriors, but what matters more is that you'd be faithful soldiers For the Lord, because you're going to cross back over that Jordan and you're not going to have us there with you to keep you accountable because you chose to dwell outside the land. So as they're now departing, they have their own freedom. They won't have the control of a ruling general over top of them and someone who's in authority. They now, in a sense, have to walk out their own spiritual life. So he's saying, listen, when you go back over there, he's just giving them a challenge to their season of independence. And he's saying, listen, now walk it out. Love the Lord. He's saying, serve him. Be faithful to him. Keep his word. Make sure that you serve the Lord and hold fast to him. Don't deviate spiritually, he's saying. You're going to have freedom now. You're going to have freedom. Don't deviate spiritually, he's giving them just a spiritual exhortation. Verse 6, so Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, half the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, The other half, Joshua gave a possession on this side of the Jordan westward. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them. I love that reference. Joshua sent them away and blessed them. It speaks to me how Jesus, our Joshua, that's often how Jesus sends us away. He blesses us, sends us away blessed. I hope whenever you spend time with Jesus for however long, seven minutes, seven days, seven years, that you... You leave blessed if you've been with Jesus and you've heard him speak to you. He sends us away blessed once we spent time with him and been in his presence. And verse 8 says he spoke to them saying return with much riches to your tents with very much livestock, silver and gold and bronze and iron and with very much clothing and divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. So again notice they accumulated a lot of riches all these battles, all the territories they conquered, they've amassed quite a bit of wealth, gold and silver and bronze and iron, as well as animals and livestock. And, and he basically gives them now, if you would, their, their reward, their compensation militarily. He says, look, here's your share. And he sends them away with quite a bit of riches. And he says, look, you've, you've served in conflict Here are your spoils of war. Take this back to your territory. But he says, when you go back, don't be greedy. Don't be selfish. Don't hoard it all for yourself. He says, God's blessed you. So now share what you've received. Divide the spoil, he says, of your enemies with your brethren. That is with those that have been waiting back at home, maintaining the home front, while you've been out doing what you're doing. And again, we see this principle in scripture many times where god speaks of how there should be this sharing of both the workman and the one who's behind maintaining allowing the workman to be out what they're doing whether it's the person who's sending and supporting the missionary whether it's the person who's sending and supporting the soldier that there should be an equal sharing because if the brethren and the wives and the children didn't stay back over on the east Who would have been maintaining the land over there, protecting the wives and the children, working the fields if they weren't doing that while the military soldiers were across the Jordan fighting the campaign? So Joshua says here, listen, share with those who are back in the area where you're going. Be selfish with what I'm blessing you with, or be unselfish, he says, with what I'm blessing you with. Now, verse nine, the story starts to get interesting now as they depart and go home, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh returned, and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, remember where the tabernacle had been set up, central in the land, to go to the country of Gilead in the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh built an altar. Uh oh, what's this about? They now stop. They build an altar there by the Jordan. Now, this is on the west side before they crossed over. And it says they built, look at it, a great and impressive altar. So this was a very big, obvious altar. It was great. It was intended to impress. The idea is it was to draw attention. So it was, it was a purposely built, large, obvious, impressive altar. Before they cross over into their land, they built it right on the edge of the Jordan. Verse four, understandably, what's that about? Now, the children of Israel heard someone say, uh, did you hear the children of Reuben, the children of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh before they went across the river? They built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war Against their brethren, the two and a half tribes. So, what happens? They get hearsay that an altar was built. And what do they think right away? Wait a minute. Joshua just gave them an exhortation. Don't worship foreign gods, love the Lord, serve him, don't make altars to other deities, worship the one true and living God here at the Shiloh Tabernacle where we all are called to be faithful to the Lord. And as soon as he cuts you loose, as soon as you get your papers to be released from, from military, the first thing you do before you even get home is... Is you start to deviate and build altars to make your own sacrifices on, and all of a sudden, what do they do? They assume, I know we never do this, the worst. Did you hear what they're doing? Did you hear what they did? Do you know what their intentions are? Now, all they've heard is that an altar is but right away, they just assume if you build an altar, you are becoming a reprobate. You're deviating. Now, let me just say, I'm not saying it was a wise idea that they were doing what they were doing, but we're going to see that their intentions weren't what they were assuming their intended. This is going to cause a great misunderstanding. So much of an understanding, as soon as the military campaigns are over, a civil war almost erupts. And they're ready to now go to war and put to death their own brethren, the people of God, because they are assuming the worst, as they it says there, they heard someone say. Well, isn't that how it always happens? Some we hear. Did you hear what they did? D- did you hear what they're doing? Did you hear what's going? And and we don't have the facts. We don't have all the information. But but we've someone said something. We heard something. Where they heard it? Why they heard it? What we just heard something. But of course, when we hear something, that is instant justification in our little carnal minds and hearts. That of course we have to assume the worst because we've heard something we've heard they've done something and, and that's all that we need we could build a foolproof case cut and dry and we are incredible prosecutors at that point point. and we always assume the worst and that's basically what happens here they are ready gathered at Shiloh and they are assembling together the whole nation they are ready to launch a civil war and to eliminate their brethren because they think that they're creating again a false altar and they're going to lead the people astray spiritually and rebel against God and they are not going to tolerate it So they are going to squash that right away. So verse 13, thankfully some level-headedness prevailed. It says, The children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the children of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And with them ten rulers also, one ruler from each of the chief house of every tribe of Israel. Each one was the head of his house and father among the divisions of Israel. So Phinehas one of the priestly individuals, one of the spiritual leaders, and then a representative who was a wise leader from each one of the tribes, they now go and say, maybe we ought to go ask them what's going on instead of just kill them. Maybe we should talk to them first. Maybe we should actually see what's actually going on. And that's always a good thing to do. Then they came to the children of Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, saying, thus says the whole congregation, what treachery is this that you've committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord. So what do they do? <laughs> they start conversation, but they go right on the assault. What They say, what are you doing? Treachery against the Lord you're committing, turning away from following the Lord. You build an altar that you might rebel this day. So right away they start confronting them and rebuking them for what they're doing is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us that was the issue that happened with Balak and Balaam remember from numbers in which we are not cleansed till this day although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord remember thousands of people died because of that incident but that you must now turn away this day from following the Lord and shall it be that if you rebel today against the Lord that tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel you're going to bring death against us god will judge all of us they learned that when one person at times would rebel that sin would affect and impact the whole nation and the whole congregation so they're greatly concerned nevertheless verse 19 if the land of your possession is unclean if you can't handle it over there on that side they say then cross back over the land of the possession of the lord where the lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us they're just saying look if you can't handle it Come back over here. If you need help, we'll give you some of our land. But don't start a spiritual rebellion. Move back home, they're saying. By building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God, you're building a second altar besides the one true altar, which Deuteronomy 12 said they were never to worship anywhere else than the prescribed place. Did not Achan, remember that story? The son of Zerah a trespass in the accursed thing. And wrath fell on the congregation of Israel. Thirty-six people died. And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. So they do one thing right in that they confront them. And they communicate with them. They communicate with great candor. They're very frank. They're very direct. They don't just say, you know what? They don't just launch, thankfully, a a full-scale war. Instead, they say, you know what, maybe we ought to go dialogue first. And that's always a good idea. Before you start a full-scale war because you're just assuming the worst, because you heard something or you you just saw one thing, but you have no idea what the motive behind it is, the reason behind it, what they're thinking, what's going on, what they're feeling, they're going to completely misread their intention here in this. They're completely just, you know, uh, this is becoming completely exaggerated in their minds. It's way worse in their mind than what it really was going on. And thankfully, they had enough wisdom that some of the leadership said, maybe before we launch a war, we ought to go talk to them. And it's very it's very direct conversation. They start reproving them and challenging them and rebuking them and if they would have been right then hopefully at least they would have spared them and that could have resolved a conflict. But they're going to find out here that they're completely in a sense presuming very wrong about what's actually going on in the situation. So they're challenging them here for building another altar for sacrifice and rebelling against the Lord. And the children of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions, The Lord, God of gods, the Lord of of gods, he knows. And let Israel itself know if it is a rebellion or if it's treachery against the Lord, then they said, then don't save us this day. If we've built built ourselves an altar to turn away from following the Lord or if it's to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, Then let the Lord himself require an account. If we're guilty, let God judge us, they say. God knows our hearts, but here's what they say. The explanation is, in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason, saying, in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us, you and the children of Reuben and Gad. You have no part in the Lord. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering nor sacrifice, not for what you're assuming, the worst of us, but we build it that it may simply be, notice, a memorial, a witness, a reminder between you and us and our generations to come after us that we have performed the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and with our peace offerings and that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. So they say, listen, you've completely misread our intention here. This is not what we were doing. We weren't building this for sacrifices and offerings so that we won't come to the true tabernacle and worship with you. We were actually afraid that if we didn't set up a reminder because of the separation of the Jordan that in time to come, you might exclude us And in generations to come, our children wouldn't have the freedom to come over here and worship together with you. So we just built this as a memorial, as a reminder that we are connected to you. And this is just a symbolic altar that we've built for nothing other than symbolism. And as a witness, a testimony between us and you in generations to come, that we share together in the worship at the true altar there in Shiloh where it was at that time. So again, a complete misunderstanding, that was brought forth thankfully by communication and by just talking openly and directly about it they were able to bring to the surface things that needed to be brought up so there was clarity and things were indicated properly so that there wasn't a complete all-out civil war among them now let me just say I still don't think it was wise for the children on the other side of the Jordan River to do this they weren't to build other altars And what they did created a tremendous misunderstanding. Yes, they were misread. Yes, it caused undue alarm and they assumed the worst, the children of Israel. But those two and a half tribes, number one, they weren't supposed to build an altar. Number two, it says that they did this, verse 24, out of fear. So what they did was motivated out of fear. Doing things when you're motivated out of fear is always a bad thing to do. We need to do things in faith. If they just had faith and trusted the Lord, they would have never built this altar and they would have never caused the misunderstanding they did. So be careful when you do things out of fear and panic and insecurity, you're going to cause misunderstanding. When we do things out of fear and we don't have faith and trust God and we start trying to fix problems and set it up for ourselves and... You know, we want to navigate things and make sure that we take care of ourselves because we're afraid and we're insecure. When we do that kind of stuff, all we're going to do is create misunderstandings with people around us. We're going to cause offense. We're going to start issues and problems. And it was their fear. And interestingly enough, what do they say? They say multiple times here, we were concerned that your descendants will exclude our descendants. Talk about a little bit of blame shifting. Yeah, we've chosen to stay outside of the land, which really isn't God's ultimate will. But we're not concerned that our children will become carnal. We're afraid your children will become carnal. All of a sudden now they're blame shifting. We're worried about your kids, that you're going to raise rebels and our kids will be so godly they won't be able to come over to the tabernacle there in Shiloh. And again, this just goes to show you where the reasoning was off and it caused a misunderstanding. Both parties share a level of guilt here. One party created the misunderstanding because of wrong choices and because of poor decisions and doing things outside of the will of God and acting in fear and insecurity. The other party, in almost an overzealousness to be righteous and not taking time to talk first, begins to assume the worst and starts responding angrily and upset before they took the time to really talk it through and dialogue and give an opportunity for some clarity to be brought to the surface. So again, it, there was a mingled level of uh, mistake on both ends, but thankfully, this spares a civil war from happening. Verse 28, therefore, we said it will be when they say to us in our generations to come that we may say, here's the replica of the altar of the Lord that our fathers made, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but it's a witness between you and us Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day, to build an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings or sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord our God which is before his tabernacle. Now when Phineas the priest and the rest of the rulers of the congregation and the heads of the divisions that were with him heard these words, notice it pleased them. And Phineas the son of Eliezer, said to the children of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, this day we perceive that the Lord is among us. Why? Because the Lord always seeks to bring peace, reconciliation. When the Lord's among us, he will bring resolution to problems through communication and discussion and patience and love, believing all things rather than assuming the worst and overreacting. We perceive the Lord is among us. He spared us from an undue conflict because we've not committed this treachery. You've not committed this treachery against the Lord and you've delivered by sharing with us honestly, you've delivered us out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer and the rulers, they returned back from the children of Reuben and Gad from the land of Gilead back to Canaan to the children of Israel and brought back word to them of what had happened So the thing pleased the children of Israel and the children of Israel blessed God. Thank you, Lord. It wasn't what we were assuming it was. Forgive us for wrongly reading into that. And they spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Now, you know, This chapter, I'll tell you, nothing new under the sun. I'm glad it's included in the word of God regarding something happening among the congregation of God because I tell you, this same kind of thing still happens among the congregation of God's people today. Where people do things, people hear things, people see something, they don't see everything, but they see something, they observe something, or they hear something because somebody tells them something, And then they misunderstand. They assume the worst. They read way into And all of a sudden, this tiny thing mushrooms into this huge misunderstanding. And all of a sudden, there's anger and battle and conflict and people are ready to bite and devour each other and cut each other off. All because why? Because we don't exercise biblical conflict resolution. And I have seen at times... Horrible devastation, division, destruction of families, friendships, fellowships, because people don't do the right thing, which is rather than just read into it and just uh, just to go and say, hey, can I talk to you about this? I just I don't want to misunderstand can we and, and people just sharing through open communication and the truth being able to come to the surface and things being able to be resolved and reconciled and peace returning and unity rather than bloody carnage where there's civil war among God's people and all kinds of things like that Jesus has told us if your brother offends you what declare war go to him if you think you have been offended Go to that person. That's what we're called to do. To try and win them over, to talk to them, to communicate to them. That—that That is our responsibility. You know, I've talked to people before. Listen, well, uh, did you ever go to them? Well, no, no, you know, I'm too hurt. No, no, you have a responsibility. To That is your responsibility. Your responsibility, if you feel offended or that that person has potentially done something, your responsibility is to go to them like Phineas and the elders do here, to initiate discussion, to seek to bring resolution, to spare from carnage and hurt and more happening among God's people. So again, great example there for us of what could have happened and what can happen if we don't respond properly when these kind of misunderstandings and things happen. Let's stand, let's pray.